This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. As we stand, let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, that you would burn in our hearts, that we might recognize you afresh today through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Two people, Cleopas and another, are walking on the road out of Jerusalem to Emmaus. It's about a seven-mile walk. They are sad, bewildered, and in the depths of grief. And then Jesus appears and asks what to them surely must have seemed like a ridiculous question. What are you discussing? Was this man the only stranger in Jerusalem who didn't know what had happened on that first Good Friday? Indeed, that's pretty much what they say to him. At this point, of course, they didn't recognize that this stranger was Jesus. The way Luke describes this is somewhat intriguing. He says, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. St. Luke seems to be suggesting that God was somehow preventing them from recognizing Jesus. And frustrating though that may be to us, we're not told why. Perhaps also Luke wants us to understand that we can know the presence of the risen Christ without being able to see him physically. As we learn in this passage, it was through the opening of the scriptures and then in the breaking of the bread that Jesus is made known. But whatever the reasons that kept them from recognizing Jesus, they were more than glad to tell this stranger all about Jesus and the events of the previous Friday. And so Jesus walks alongside them and listens to them as they tell him the story of the one that they had loved and admired and followed until this tragic death. What irony that the Jesus of whom they were speaking was the very one to whom they were speaking. Cleopas described Jesus um, in verse 19 of the gospel as Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people. And in any other context, those would have been words of the highest praise. But on that day, what Cleopas says about Jesus, well, I think there are more words of despair than they are a proclamation as they tell Jesus that their Messiah had been crucified. You can almost hear the crushing despair in their voices. Verse 21, but we had hoped. What had they hoped? They had hoped that Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. And there's great irony in this also, of course, for the crucifixion had not, in fact, negated that hope, but was precisely the means by which Jesus did redeem Israel. But they didn't understand that, at least not at this point. 
it seems that they understood God's unfolding plan of history to be a story of how God would redeem Israel from suffering. And yet the real story that Jesus explained to them was of how God would save Israel through suffering, through the suffering of the promised Savior, through Jesus himself. As Jesus drew alongside those disciples on the Emmaus Road and listened to them and explained God's story to them, so today Jesus still draws near to us, to be with us by his Holy Spirit and to lead us into truth and understanding of God's story. Even though they didn't know then who he was, the two travelers on the Emmaus Road were very keen to invite Jesus to stay with them and join them for a meal at the end of that walk. Jesus had been revealing himself to them all along by his presence, through the scriptures, and then finally through a shared meal and a simple act of breaking bread with them. I think for us this morning, this passage takes on a poignancy perhaps like never before. The very things that we cannot do right now is encounter Jesus in the ordinariness of meeting together, of sharing a meal and doing life together. How often have you heard me speak of the importance of hospitality? Anyone who's ever been to Ascension will know how much we value hospitality. We love to welcome newcomers. We love to eat together. We love to be together. Every year, we love to go away together on our annual treat, hundreds and hundreds of us. And here we are, not together. And it's getting really old. We're fed up with this. We don't like this. We want to be done with this. Fellowship, hospitality, being together was very clearly important, vital in the life of the early church. We saw that in the reading that Catherine read from the book of Acts. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. We know and have so often experienced that one of the ways that Jesus is made known to us is through fellowship and through breaking of bread. And we're especially conscious of God's presence as we gather here on Sunday mornings in the presence of others. We hear God's word read and proclaimed and we receive Holy Eucharist. For those weary travelers, it was when Jesus took the bread broke it, blessed it, and gave it to them, that their eyes were finally opened. I've often wondered, what was it that made them recognize Jesus in that particular moment? Perhaps it was the very act of Jesus taking the bread and breaking it and sharing it. Perhaps they recognized Jesus at that point because maybe when Jesus broke the bread, they saw the palms of his hands. They saw the nail marks. I don't know. Very often it is in the midst of the seemingly ordinary that we may encounter the profoundly extraordinary. I think today many of us are missing the ordinariness of going to church. 
I wonder, did we take it for granted? At one level, it was pretty ordinary. I mean, we'd gather here, arriving vaguely on time, by which I mean, for many at least, a few minutes late. Um, but we'd get settled, and we'd sing, and we'd pray, and we'd listen to a sermon, and then each week we participated in a simple act of sharing bread and wine. And after that, we'd stay a while, and we'd chat, and we'd eat some food, and then we'd go home. And it's hard to believe that I'm saying all this in the past tense. For that is what we used to do but have not been able to do for the last seven Sundays. I feel a bit like Cleopas, but we had hoped. We had hoped that we could do this every week, or at least have the option of doing it every week. When I looked at the appointed readings for today, I confess I inwardly groaned. I thought to myself, well, I don't really want to preach on being together, and on Jesus being made known in the breaking of bread, when we cannot be together and we cannot receive Holy Communion. What on earth can I say that won't just be utterly depressing? I did wonder whether I could perhaps add insult to injury by having a slideshow of all the places to which we can't travel, or we could brainstorm all the things that we can't do. This Easter is beginning to feel a lot like Lent. A long, drawn-out Lent in which we've been forced to give things up. We've been forced to give up meeting together and sharing Holy Communion. What a nightmare. This past week, I've been struggling with this. I, I don't like it. I really don't. I want it to be over. And as I listen to the news, it's, it's hard not to despair. From some of our leaders, I don't see empathy or compassion, only bluster and blame. Meanwhile, more than 200,000 have died worldwide, and more than 54,000 of those are here in the States, all from a new virus about which we still know less than we need to know, and for which we have no cure and no vaccine. I've spent many hours thinking and planning this past week of how we might begin a process of reopening ascension for public worship. And I'm coming to terms with the probability that whether that will come sooner or later, it will initially at least only be partial. And I have no firm timeline. So now here you all are, sitting on the edge of your sofas, wondering what I'm going to announce, and all I can tell you is, I don't know. And so our sense of disappointment, frustration, longing, and lament continues. Uh, but please don't reach for your remote or close your laptop just yet. For in the midst of so many questions for which we do not have answers, there is hope, there is comfort, and there is challenge. I was struck this week by the Apostle Peter's words, and I want to look at that passage. In 1 Peter 1 verse 13, which we heard earlier, St. Peter exhorts us, set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as he who called you is holy... Be holy yourselves 
in all your conduct. For it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And he is writing this letter to Christians who are scattered, who are living in the face of persecution, and who could not carry on as if everything was all right. The churches he was writing to were in exile. Peter urges them to live in reverent fear during the time of your exile. Most of us Americans are not used to living in exile. We're not used to giving things up or doing without the things that we want and not being able to call the shots. The New Hampshire motto, live free or die, whether or not we might like to admit it, often isn't far from how functionally we feel about things when someone places restrictions on us. Yet here we are, living with our freedoms curtailed, and we don't like it. And we get frustrated when we hear politicians saying things that we disagree with or think are ignorant. But then, I read these words from Peter, which call me out and call me to be holy. And I confess to you that some of my thoughts and and uh, words this past week have not been holy. As I've reflected on this, I've asked myself, why have I gotten so angry when I've witnessed what I perceive to be failures of leadership? And I'm thinking of all sorts of failures in our own nation, in other nations, and in other contexts. I might like to think that my anger is justified and righteous, but whether or not it is, I think it betrays something else about me. A failure on my part to put my trust in God. A failure to remember all that God has done in Christ. A failure to live according to the hope that I have as an Easter Christian. Like the two on the road to Emmaus, I so easily get stuck on that little phrase, but we had hope. Which is better, to eat the bread and drink the wine or to say a prayer for spiritual communion? Which is better, to be here together with your church family in this building or to participate remotely on YouTube? We know the answers. But let me reframe or reimagine those which is better questions. Yes, we are in a season of unwanted trial and testing, and no longer can we take for granted what we may have presumed would be ours as if by right. We, not uh, not wholly unlike the scattered churches to whom Peter wrote, are experiencing a time of forced exile from one another. Yes, we had hoped. But let me ask you this. Which is better? To rely on Jesus who is risen from the dead and who gives us hope, who is the Lord of all truth and the God of all comfort, or to rely on the politicians. Which is better, to put our trust in God who has ransomed us from the futility of life with the precious blood of Christ, or 
to strive for our rights and demand our freedoms. There's no contest. Our faith and our hope are in the living God. This morning, I want to reclaim a, a right sense of perspective if we can. All the more so when all we see and read is 24-7 coronavirus. That New Hampshire slogan, live free or die, perhaps it's not all bad. It just depends on how we appropriate those words. If by them we mean, I'd rather die than have any of my personal freedoms curtailed, well, that's one thing. But what if we understood them rather differently? As Christians, there is only way that we can truly live free. We already know that we all die. That's a given. As Peter reminds us this morning, all flesh is like grass and all its glory, like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. If we want to live free, true freedom is found only through God's word. Jesus, the living word, as revealed in the Bible, God's written word. The source of our freedom is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. St. Peter writes, set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. As we do that, we find freedom from the slavery of sin, freedom from the tyranny of death, and freedom from any despair or despondency that may come from temporary stay-at-home orders. It is as we look to God, as we remember Christ's finished work on the cross, as we hear his words of promise and we see his salvation, that we fix our hope on him. The truth is, so much of what we take for granted is in fact temporary and transient. Our physical health is temporary. We will all die. Holy communion is temporary until we partake of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Being together with all the complexities of our human selves is but a foreshadowing of being together for all eternity, where there will be no more crying or mourning or sadness. You know, historians love to mark off time according to political or technological advances. So we have the Iron Age or the colonial period or the industrial revolution or the technological revolution. And now we may be tempted to think of, you know, pre-COVID and post-COVID. But according to God's story, the last age is ushered in by the coming of Jesus. And this age will continue until Christ comes again. And this is the age in which we are living now the age of Christ's resurrection and glory. Though we are afflicted, these present afflictions are not worth comparing to the hope we have in Christ. So if you've had a rough week, as I know some of you have, if you are feeling down or depressed, grief-stricken, listless or despairing, today is a new day a new day of God's grace and mercy. It is the day of resurrection. 
Peter writes, you have been born anew, not of perishable, but of imperishable seed, through the living and enduring word of God. And Peter exhorts us to love one another deeply from the heart. How are we to do this? Well, I think we might need to get a little bit creative, given that we cannot be with one another. But, you know, you can still love someone from a distance. When I was getting to know Andrea, she lived in Boston, and I was here in Pittsburgh. We used to talk on the phone for hours. And, and one evening, when it was approaching midnight, and we'd been talking for rather a long time, Andrea said to me, do you realize what time it is and how long we've been talking? I said, you know, check my watch. I said, well, yes, but it's hardly that surprising, given that between us, we've got about 109 years to catch up on. Was it hard pursuing a long-distance relationship? Well, in many ways, yes, it was. Was it better to be together in the same place? Of course it was. But my point is simply this. Let us not give up our calling as Christians to love one another deeply and to love our neighbor. Let us not sit and stew in corona time, waiting for it all to be over. No, pick up the phone, call someone, talk to them. But by the way, these um, rather fancy calendar um, camera internet devices, they, they still work as telephones. You can actually pick them up and dial, and you can talk to people. It's amazing. So I want to challenge you this week to pick up your phone and call five people. Call five people. Ask them how they're doing. Listen to them. Don't do all the talking. And offer to pray for them. That's something that pretty much all of us can do. Maybe you'll call a, another person in church who you've not seen for seven weeks. Maybe you'll call a neighbor. Maybe you'll call a work colleague who likewise you haven't seen. Just as Jesus drew alongside Cleopas and his companion in the midst of their grief, their confusion, and the despair of their lives, so too Jesus continues to draw near to us. In the midst of our own longings and laments, when times are hard or our hearts are hurting, and we too can draw alongside others, even through something as simple as making one of those five phone calls. Though we may feel at times crushed or lonely, the story of the Emmaus Road is that God never, ever abandons us. We never walk alone. Though we may not always recognize it at the time, Jesus walks alongside us. I know some people may have encountered Jesus through a very dramatic, almost Damascus Road-type experience with absolute instant conviction and an immediate about-turn of their lives, and that's a wonderful thing. Many others, probably many more others, encounter Jesus through what we might call an Emmaus Road experience. So through the haze of tears, when tired and disappointed, you gradually realize that your heart has been burning within you as you've become aware of the presence of the risen Christ there with you, walking alongside you, helping you to understand and put your trust in him.
Just as the traveler's eyes were opened to Christ's presence, so too can your eyes be opened afresh. It is as we search the scriptures together, as we love one another deeply, as we worship together and share our faith with others, that our eyes may be opened evermore to the presence of Christ with us day by day. If you experience your heart burning within you as you worship God, even this morning, or as you read the scriptures, pay attention to that. Tell someone about what you've experienced. Perhaps God is making himself known to you, even today. For the Lord is risen. He is with us, and he still makes himself known. Thanks be to God. Alleluia.